pray with me? Lord, we we are here to worship. We are here to bow down. And um, and God, you and you alone are worthy of our worship. Lord, I pray this morning that um, as as we are gathered together here, as we worship, as we experience your presence here, Lord, I pray for um, each person here this morning. Pray for kids as they are, even now as they're going to their classes and, and, um, and going to learn the, the stories and the lessons. Lord, I pray that you'd open their hearts to the truths of your word as only you can. And Lord, be with each of us, um, God, as we open your word. Lord, show us what we don't know. Uh, make us what we aren't. And, um, and give us the, the grace to, uh, to understand what your word is for us today. We promise, Lord, that um, we want to be obedient and uh, we want to hear your voice speaking to our hearts. So speak to us, Lord, as we open your word. Thank you, and we pray it all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Welcome this morning. If you're new here, my name is Floyd, and... I do the uh, majority of the preaching and teaching here at Cornerstone. Um, I did have a moment where I was starting to wonder if the kids were going to stay with us this morning because normally, we, it, you know, you know the, the drill. If you're norm, if you're a regular here, they leave between like third and fourth song, and and um, so um, I, I was okay with them leaving while I was praying. That's cool. So uh, we are in Second Peter. We're working our way through that, and we're getting into chapter 2 of 2nd Peter. This is one of those sections of text that when I got to it, I asked, what was I thinking? (laughs) Like, why did I go to 2nd Peter? Because of this passage. And even more importantly is, why didn't I just have Billy preach this one? This one's a little bit of a difficult one. It talks about false prophets. And I don't know what comes in your mind when you think about false prophets. Maybe you get this picture of like this angry guy with his hair is all pointed in different directions. Maybe he's really smooth. Maybe he's on TV. Maybe he's at a church you were once at or that you visited. I don't know. What comes in your mind when you think of false prophets? I was praying with a group of pastors recently, and we were kind of all talking about what we're doing with preaching and where we're at and stuff, and I said, well, I'm in Second Peter, and I said, I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to do when I get to chapter 2, and it talks about false prophets. And one of them says, well, are you going to name them? I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you... If you would see some of my social media accounts, because of the people that I tend to follow in uh, the you know American Christianity, different people, um, you would know, and you probably already do, that there is a whole group of people who just get a kick out of exposing heretics. I call them heresy hunters, and I'm pretty sure they're licensed. Like, they just are always on the prowl for the next heretic. And who could we find that disagrees with us and 
we could label him a heretic. And if you've hung around Christianity very long, you know that not all Christians agree on everything. Like there's things that you, you look at even both sides of an issue and you think, how in the world did they come to those kind of conclusions? And, you know, we've got labels for them. Calvinist, Armenian, um, cessation, continuance, you know, different, and then, the, then all the denominational labels. This denomination believes in, in this and kind of capitalizes on that, and the other one believes in something else and kind of capitalizes on that. Um, some people baptize adults, some people baptize babies. What in the world are we supposed to do with that? Should we just consider each other heretics as long as it's different? Where do you, how do you navigate things like those disagreements? And at what point does it cross that line of being just a disagreement over the way we do things or even the way we think God it deals with people? Where does it cross a line into, well, that's heresy? Because there actually is a line. And there actually is a point where it's deviated from the truth to the point that it's actually destructive in people's lives. And I hope we're going to get a little bit of help out of Peter's letter here. And even more so, I hope that I'm able to communicate what he intended well enough that it can help us. So, if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in verse 1 and we're going to read to verse 10. This is in the context of Peter having written in chapter 1, and he's writing, he was writing about the authority of Scripture. If you were here last week, you, you heard me talk about the authority of Scripture and its place in our lives. He talks about the apostolic authority of the New Testament writers. He talked about the, the authority of the Old Testament writers. And he ended up chapter 1, and he says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And if there was not a chapter break, which there wasn't when Peter wrote this, the chapter breaks were added later. So there was no chapter break between verse, chapter 1 and chapter 2. So he would have just written, he would have said, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment... If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. 
then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from the trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. You say, man, that's kind of dark. He's talking about false prophets. He's talking about examples of what he did with them, how God responded to them. And then thankfully, he talks about how he will respond and how he will rescue us. If you went back up to verse 1, if you have an open Bible in your lap, you would see, especially depending on which translation you're using, you would see this word twice in verse 1, and it's the word among. He says, there were false prophets among you. And he says, and there will be, and just because he uses future tense does not mean that he's necessarily prophesying that it's going to happen in the future. It's more along the lines of, and this is going to happen, as in, it, like we use that term too for stuff that is just the way it is. Like this is just going to be this way. And he's like, there's, there's going to be false prophets among you. Again, that word among. And most of the time, we are more comfortable with the idea of false prophets or false teaching, things that are not right and that are not accurate, as long as it's away from us. Like, as long as we can discuss this or think about it in terms of distance, it's much more comfortable. But the idea that you are surrounded or that it's among, like your life is immersed with false prophecies, that's a little more disturbing. But that's the language that Peter is using. He's saying there was false prophets, and, then, and now there is false prophets. Like there is, there is ideas that are destructive and that are false and that are not grounded in truth among you. And they didn't even have Facebook. Like they had it then too. It was permeating their lives. It was around them all over the place. Ideas and notions. When this was being written, there was a popular notion um, that Jesus was, like there was actually two arguing ideas. Some people said that Jesus was so divine that he didn't actually have a physical body and he didn't suffer as a man. That he didn't fully experience that pain because he was so he was so full as God. He was fully divine, but not fully man. And then there was the opposing idea that he was literally just a man, that he was probably something special, that God had definitely given him some kind of a special anointing, but he wasn't really God. And those ideas were arguing with each other. And they were living in that context. What do they do with Jesus? So you read, especially like 2 Peter, Jude, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are all written in those contexts to really address those kinds of errors and those kinds of heresies that were floating around in their day. And they really hone in on the sovereignty or the, the lordship of Jesus Christ, that he was fully God, he was fully man, that he suffered as a man, and he was fully divine. And that's an essential belief, by the way, to Christianity. Because if he's not fully God, then he can't fully pay for our sins because he's not innocent. And if he's not fully man, he doesn't fully pay for our sins because he doesn't fully take the penalty of sin on. 
So it's essential that he is, in fact, I'm not asking you to understand it. I don't understand it completely, but I believe it. So Peter is writing this as a, in the context of there being false teachings around them, among them. They're surrounded by this stuff. And how are they supposed to respond? Well, first of all, Peter talks about the false teachers, and it's a dark picture. I even made the slide black in order to kind of communicate. It's a dark picture. Alistair Begg helps us out a little bit with this. He talks about their, their tactics or their strategy, and then, and then we'll go on through there. Verse 1, it talks about the strategy of the false teachers. It talks about their secrecy. They didn't come in the front door and say, we're here this morning, and we are the false teachers. Well, they still don't, do they? When you are confronted with error and with misinformation and lies, it doesn't come in the front door and say, Hi, I'm here to mislead you. It's always with the stated goal to enlighten you. That's what false teaching does. But not everything that pretends to enlighten should be trusted to enlighten. Because some of it is error. They have destructive heresies, which is literally teachings that destroy people's lives. And then it says that they deny, and the, the exact language is that they deny the master who bought them. And there has been a lot of discussion and a lot of ink spilled over what it means that they deny the master who bought them. Are these people who had at one time had faith in Jesus and then had fallen away? Well, depending on your doctrinal persuasion, you can't conclude that. And are these people who, who somehow um, had been predestined but then had not obeyed? I, you know, there's all kinds of ideas floating around. I don't actually think it's that complicated. I really don't. He's literally talking about Jesus Christ who paid the price for the sins of the whole world. He had purchased their salvation and he purchased everyone's salvation. And there is just a denial of Jesus Christ as a master and as a Lord. Period. And I don't, like sometimes we, we overthink stuff to the point that we miss the point. The point is that they denied the lordship of Jesus Christ. That these people, their strategy was never to submit themselves to Jesus Christ as Lord of their lives. In other words, what they were teaching and what they were promoting, what they are teaching and what they are promoting is not pointing people to Jesus, it's pointing people away from him. And this, by the way, is very helpful in the discussion of where is the line between just disagreements that Christians have and heresy. This helps us, doesn't it? Because if the teaching or the doctrine is moving people away from Jesus Christ, and if it's taking the eyes of people away from Jesus, then it's a false doctrine. It's a false teaching. If the, or if the, um, the confidence that's being placed in front of people is that you're supposed to find the power within you, or you're supposed to be confident in somehow in your own works or your own goodness. It's false. Because it's moving us away from the simple faith in Jesus Christ as Lord of our lives. That's a non-negotiable. 
And you're saying, well, okay, <laughs> I get that that's non-negotiable, but I know some people who say they believe in Jesus, but they don't really teach it. Well, I'm just saying, you don't have to label the person as much, but it's okay to say, if the teaching or the idea moves us away from a simple faith in Jesus Christ, it is error. It's wrong. And Peter helps us by identifying some of their strategies right off the bat. He says it's secretive, it's a destructive heresy, and they deny Christ's lordship. Then he talks about in verse 2 and in getting into verse 3, their impact. This is what happens when the false prophets are carrying out their strategies. It says many follow their sensuality. This word sensuality, we tend to sort of associate it with sexuality, and it's not completely accurate. Sensuality has simply to do with the senses. And it's determining truth by their senses. In other words, my truth is whatever feels good. That sound familiar? Like whatever I feel in the moment is my truth. And by the way, I'm not crazy about the term my truth or your truth. And here's why. It's because we're not the standard of truth. We're not, we don't hold within ourselves the foundation of truth. The foundation of truth is Jesus Christ. And so this notion that somehow, well, it can be true if it's your truth, it can be true if it's my truth, that is essentially the following of sensuality. It's saying, this is just how I feel. I feel this way right now. And the problem is it's a dead-end doctrine. You don't want the people around you to determine truth in that way. You don't want to walk into your bank where you had... $2,000 in that account, and your banker says, I don't feel it this morning. I feel like there's only 200. I'm, I just dropped a zero. That's my truth. And we don't want anybody else to live that way and determine mor morals that way. But this is the, the lie of this false doctrine, these false prophets who are among them, among us, is that Truth is established by our senses and whatever we're feeling in the, in the moment. And then there is this dishonest exploitation. And it talks about in verse 2, there it says that they, um, that, that they, they follow sensuality, truth is blaspheme, and then their greed, they will exploit you with many words. They take advantage of people. They take what's not really rightfully theirs because they develop followings. And with following comes advantage, position, and power, and even money. Now, I skipped over the middle one because I want to come back to that where it says that truth is blasphemed. And I think this is very important that one of the impacts of error and heresy is that where it exists, truth is treated with contempt. It's blasphemed. And he says it's going to be one of the impacts of the false teachers. Is that as people around look in, that they are repulsed 
not drawn. In other words, the people who claim the name of Jesus, when they start going after false doctrine, will do more to dishonor his name than if they had just kept their mouths shut. It's a, it is a fact that in many cases, what happens in the lives of those who name the name of Jesus Christ can actually push people away from Jesus, not draw them to him. And that's that idea. What happens when that is taking place? Well, what happens is that people are living their lives and making decisions based on what is not even true in the first place, on things that are lies. And there's a long list of them. But when, when a group of people or a person begin to find their security and their salvation, their confidence outside of the simple gospel of Jesus Christ, inevitably, they wind up mistreating people in their group and outside their group, and those who look from the outside in say, I want nothing to do with that. Truth is blasphemed. And it's quiet because most of us can think of times when we've seen that happen. And it's a sad commentary on any group of people who name the name of Jesus if their lives are pushing people away from Jesus. It was never intended to be that way. Truth is blasphemed as a result of that falsehood. I think it's vitally important that we read these words in the context, again, of chapter 1 where it talks about the scriptures and holy men of God wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, that as we go through our lives and we relate to each other, that we would be people of the word where we're digging in the word and we're examining what does God say about how I should live in context of my marriage and my friendships and, and the way that I use my money and the way that I conduct my time because God has things to say about all of those things like I want to honor his name with all of those areas of my life so that his name is honored so that truth is not blasphemed and made dirty so we look in verses one and two at their strategy and then also their impact and then their future and in verse three it talks about their future is that they are condemned and that there is certain destruction that waits for them. And it takes on a very serious tone, doesn't it? And yet there's a part of that that is actually kind of good news. <laughs> because if you find yourself frustrated and unsettled by some of the notions and ideas that float around, and you see it actually ruining people's lives, it's good to know that God is watching and that he will address it and that he is addressing it and that we're not somehow living our lives and going through all of these things outside of the presence and the sovereign hand of God in control. And the future ultimately is their condemnation and the certain destruction. He then moves from verse 3 into examples of response. And I want to just kind of quickly go through this because he gives three examples of God responding to false prophets and false teaching. He talks about, he says, if, 
This is, by the way, a very, very long sentence. It goes from verse 4 all the way through verse 10. All one sentence. If disobedient angels were cast into hell, if the ancient world who had rejected God was destroyed by a flood, if Sodom and Gomorrah were turned to ashes, and in a moment we're going to get to the if, but he's using these examples of times throughout history where there were those who opposed God, opposed his truth, and stood in opposition to him, in defiant opposition to him, and God dealt with them. And the if is, if he dealt with them, do you think that he's not going to continue dealing with them? Like, do you think somehow, and Peter is saying, do you think somehow that if angels defied God, and didn't get away with it? Do you think that if the ancient world defied God and didn't get away with it, if Sodom and Gomorrah defied God and didn't get away with it, that false teachers are going to be able to deny and defy God and not get away with it? And the answer is the obvious, no. There will be consequences. There will be a response but in the middle of the examples, there's a couple of positives, and he points to them. One of them is that Noah and his family were preserved. He says, if, if I dealt with the angels who were defiant, if I brought a worldwide flood to the ancient world who was defiant, and then he says, but preserved Noah and his family. Why did he do that? Because he was righteous. And because God's a God of justice, and he's a God of rescue. Because he rescues his children, even in the darkest of circumstances. Secondly, he talks about Lot, and how he rescued Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And I love the way that it describes Lot in the text here, because it talks about how he was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, talks about he was a righteous man in verse 8. It says he lived among them day and day. And he says he was tormenting his righteous soul over what was happening. When is the last time that you were so grieved over the sin that is destroying people's lives? I'm not talking about being disgusted by it. That's easy. I'm talking about feeling it the way God feels it, and feeling the distress over how people's lives are being ruined by sin, and how people, as they reject God, are going through all kinds of darkness as a result of their rejection and their defiance of God. When's the last time that broke your heart? Or have we gotten too used to it, too accustomed to the darkness around us and say, well, it just is what it is. We'll huddle up in our little group, us four, no more, shut the door, we'll stay together. No. In, in Noah's story and in Lot's story, in both of them, there was a sense of anguish over what was happening around them and a sense of the impending and coming response and judgment of God and they took action as a result of that Noah was preaching daily it says 
He was constantly inviting people, you could join me in the ark. And by the way, there was plenty of room. And only Noah and his family. Lot, it says, was greatly distressed. Soul was troubled. Where the Spirit of God is working in the people of God, things begin to bother us that never bothered us before. Because the name of God starts to matter. And we start to care about the things God cares about. And we see people the way God sees them. And people who are walking around stumbling in darkness and destroying their lives because they will not just submit to a loving God. There's a grief and a sense of longing to see them set free. And God's response even in a time of immense darkness and error, was to find his lights and to say, I'll rescue them. I want to rescue them. He was looking for people who shared his heart and who cared about the same things that he did. And if God right now was looking for those he would rescue, would you, would you sit in the same place as Noah or as Lot, as someone who stands out as one who is grieved by the sin around you. So there's the description of the false prophets, there's the examples of God's response, and then there is the assurance of God's justice. In the last couple verses, he says in verse 9, he says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. The rescue by the way, is specifically a present tense. In other words, it's easy sometimes to talk about the rescue of God as something that's going to happen in the future. And it is. It will. But it's also present tense. In other words, the things that are going on around you, trials, difficulty, the struggle of living in a place where there's so much noise and error and ideas floating around. And that may be very troubling to you. You may see things, people you love and know, like buying into ideas and notions that are very destructive. You know, what, some of the most common errors of our day is putting a faith in politics that, doesn't, that should never be placed in politics. Both sides of the political aisle, by the way. Like people just trusting this guy is going to set us free. <laughs> or this person, I, you know, it's not going to happen. should never put our trust in politics. But man, there's a lot of noise in our day, isn't it? And there's a lot of people sending that message. You agree with me. Man, we're headed for the, the, the best time of our lives. If we could just get those other people to agree with us, it's not true. It happens all around us and it can be discouraging it can be unsettling but there is the assurance that God knows how to rescue the righteous from trials in other words you and I do not have to live our lives twisted up in knots about stuff that's going on around us because of the presence of God in our lives today 
We do not have to live our lives in fear, in anger, and in anxiety, and losing our peace because of all the junk that is being said around us, because of this person's doing that, and the other person's doing the other thing, and, and then, you know, if you think it's bad in government, look at what's going on in Christianity, and, and on and on and on and on. You say, no, the Lord knows how to rescue his children from those trials. Today, now. You and I can find the freedom and we can find the power to live our lives where we are free of the fear and the anxiety and the unsettledness that comes from the struggle and the difficulties of life. That is good news. And while, you know, there's definitely verses, you know, that that sort of paint this dark picture of those false prophets and the results and, and what's coming for them and all those things, I'm glad that he ends this section, that this section ends with this sort of triumphant, positive note that God knows how to deliver and rescue his children from current trials. It can happen today that you and I experience a peace where there shouldn't be any peace. That we can experience confidence where there should be fear. Where the world around us looks at us and says, looking at what you are faced with, I don't know how you have peace. And you can say, it's something that God's just doing inside of me. Is it a struggle? Yes, it's a struggle sometimes. We don't have to live that way. Because God knows how to rescue his children from trials. Secondly, evil will be punished. And I'm glad to know that evil will be punished because I don't want evil to win the day. And neither do you. And I'm grateful for a God who is a judge. And not only am I grateful that he judges the evil outside, I'm grateful that he judges the evil inside of me. And I'm grateful that one day, 2,000 years ago, his son Jesus Christ was judged on Calvary because he took himself on our sins, your sins and my sins. He took on himself and God judged him. And put them to death so that you and I could experience forgiveness. God has not ignored your sin and he hasn't ignored mine and I'm grateful he hasn't. I don't want him to ignore the sin. He didn't ignore it. The whole message of Jesus Christ dying for our sins is because God couldn't ignore it. He's a holy God. And the great rescue happened that day because he was judged And he paid the penalty that you and I deserved for our sins. I don't want a God who turns a blind eye. I want to know that my sin has been addressed and judged. It's a good thing. And we will either receive the free gift of salvation that he has taken the penalty the judgment for your sins and my sins, or we will insist on keeping our sins, holding them, and taking them before God to be judged after we die. And he's saying that God is ultimately the perfect judge, and that is actually good news. Evil will be punished. It will not Prevail. If you're hiding, if you're hiding like Adam and Eve from God, 
because of a sense of guilt and shame. The good news is you don't have to hide. There is no sin and there is no shame that is so bad and so dark that you can't take it to God and say, Lord, you already know about it. You died for it. And I trust you to forgive me of that sin. The one that's so dark, I don't even want to bring it to light. That's the good news. I love these verses in Romans chapter 8. It says, what shall then we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge, any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. It is God who justifies. You cannot, I cannot do enough good stuff to justify ourselves and to get past the sins of our lives. I can't read enough scripture. I can't attend enough church or give enough money, and all of those are wonderful things to do. I can't pray long enough or hard enough to justify myself. It is God who justifies, and he does it through his son, Jesus Christ. Have you received God's justification through Jesus? And then the sermon in a sentence. Jesus Christ is our standard of truth and the hope of rescue from the evil that attacks our faith and belief. And I want us to really grab those concepts this morning that Jesus Christ is the standard of truth that he is the gold standard he is the only standard of truth and that everything should be measured up against who is Jesus what was his purpose what does he love what does he hate and that that's the way that we guard from error you and I are not smart enough to keep ourselves from error and heresy we're, we're really not only Christ is and it is as we walk with him and as we live in him that we experience him becoming the foundation of truth and we can spot error a mile away. He's the rescue from the evil that attacks our faith and belief. And then, just because somebody was asking for it, <laughs> I have study questions. Somebody was asking yesterday, said, could you put some study questions like you, the ones you put in the email, put them with your sermon. Number one, can you think of any current ideas or teachings that deny Christ's lordship and dishonor his name? Can you? Can you think of things going on right now that are moving people away from Jesus instead of toward him? That are causing people to trust in something that's not Christ? And what should drive our response to evil? Like, how are we supposed to respond to this? In light of what God has done, What's, what should our response in light of guys like Noah and Lot? How are we going to respond to a world around us? And then drill it down personally. How has a personal relationship with Jesus changed your view of injustice and difficulty? See, all of us, it's human to lament the pain of the world. Sorrow and suffering. That's human. Humans just lament this, like, like, like we're, we complain about it. That's part of it. But how is it different with you because you know Jesus? How do you see a broken world around you differently because you know Jesus Christ? Do you? I hope so. Amber, if you guys want to go ahead and come up, I want to bring this to a close. A little over 500 years ago, there was a... Um, a period coming to a close 
that we call the Dark Ages. A period of history about, you know, 12, 1300 years long, depending on who, which historian you listen to. The problem is that the people that lived in that day didn't know that the Dark Ages was coming to close. They didn't even know they were living in the Dark Ages. That's what we call them, looking back. 1517, October 31st, a guy by the name of Martin Luther walked up to the door of Wittenberg Church and nailed his 95 theses on the door. The 95 theses, by the way, were addressing heresies within the church. And whatever your opinions are of Martin Luther, and I have a lot of mixed ones, he got one thing right, and that was that salvation was through grace alone in Jesus Christ alone. And he was determined, because he had experienced it for himself personally, he was determined to expose the heresy that salvation was being obedient to the, the state church of the day. And so Martin Luther just walks up to the door. I mean, this guy's a fierce character, and he's like, I am going to make this public. And if you read the story of Luther and all of the things that happened in the years following he was attacked, maligned. There were books written about him uh, you know, to try and oppose his teaching on grace alone, faith alone and Christ alone through grace alone. And there was conferences held. There was like this, this big one where they were going to address this for, for once for all called the Diet of Worms. It, if you read it in English, it looks like Diet of Worms. And, uh, and it kind of was. But... In all of it, he's constantly being barraged with error and with falseness, and he fiercely held to what he had experienced personally, and that was that Jesus Christ saves sinners, that he is ultimately the rescue. About 12 years after Luther nailed those 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Church, he wrote these words, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. And he based this off of Psalm 46. Our helper, he, amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing, for still our ancient foe does cease to, does cease to work us woe. His craft and power are great. He's talking about the devil, by the way, but our ancient foe. He's armed with cruel hate, and it says, and on earth is not his equal. So Luther is saying, our fortress is our God. And it doesn't matter what's going on around you, run to God. He's the fortress. You'll find safety and protection and wholeness in him. And he acknowledges the presence of evil, that there is an enemy, and he's out to get us, and he is out to attack us and destroy us. And he, and he, he sort of goes down through, and this, this song just kind of keeps building on itself, and he ends verse 3, and he says, One little word shall fell him, and he says, That word, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, the earthly powers, abideth, the spirit and the gifts are ours, through him who with us sideth, let goods and kindreds go. In other words, just let the stuff go. This mortal life also, so don't try and protect your life. The body, they may kill. God's truth abideth still and his kingdom is forever. God's truth abideth still and his kingdom is forever. If you and I are going to survive with our lives grounded on truth, we must, we must 
be grounded first in our relationship with Jesus Christ. His kingdom's forever. Kingdoms rise and fall. You know, they thought the Roman Empire would never fall, and it did. The Greeks thought their empire would go on forever, and it, it fell. We think America's going to be here forever. It isn't. God's kingdom will stand forever, and it will never fall. Why wouldn't you and I ground ourselves in a relationship with him, first and foremost? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your truth. Thank you that your truth is, is established. We don't make it true. Thank you that, Lord, that, that you are established and your throne is established forever and ever. God, this stuff has very, very practical application to our lives, and I don't even know for sure how to make all those applications in our lives, but I do know this, that right now in this room, there are people right now who are wrestling and battling the situations that are going on in them and around them and in their lives, like worried that somehow evil would prevail. God, would you bring a, peace, a sense of peace and calm even to that struggle? And just to know that your truth will stand. And even though nations rise and fall, and the earth can pass away, and your truth will stand forever and ever. God, help us as your children to ground ourselves on you and your truth and, and a relationship with you first and foremost. God, I pray that the things around us would become dim in view of the light of your glory and your grace. And God, every person here and the story that they're living out today and next week and this past week, would you help them to make that application to, to again, just be uh, reminded of your goodness and your power and your strength in their lives. And even in this moment that they would be able to say, Lord, I've been battling some anxiety. I've been battling fear, but I choose to trust. I choose to trust you and know that I'm held in your hands. I pray it all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing this last song.